Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. Welcome to the lift. Get ready to take a ride. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Season 4, Episode Number 6 of The Lift. I'm Daniel Foytek, and on behalf of everyone that helps create The Lift, we're glad you're along for our annual Christmas ride. A big thank you on behalf of all of us who make The Lift to those who have chosen to support the show financially, and of course to those who support Victoria and her mission by sharing its message with others. Especially at this time of year, when we're all thinking about who's naughty and who's nice, and when we all try to listen closer to the better angels of our nature, we love knowing that so many of you have found our show to be something special. It's heartening to know most of you understand the lift is more than an escape, and that you understand we have always stood against oppression, misogyny, and hate. Victoria is delighted the tales she shares entertain, but more importantly, she hopes her tales will make you think. As we near the end of the year, it's pretty common to reflect, and none of us is above self-examination, and Victoria's strongest belief is that we can all be better, kinder, and more accepting. It's pretty easy to say nothing and let things lie, but art has always been about looking at society, holding up a mirror to it, and being brave enough to say, look. This has really always been the mission of the show, and we remain unafraid to tackle difficult and uncomfortable topics. If you've been a long-term listener, you know shining a light into the dark is our stock and trade. As Victoria has said before, beyond fear lies truth and the pathway to our better selves. She also told me today that she takes issue with anyone who thinks that she or her world are fictional, but... I assured her that no one listening to this message would be that foolish. Now, today's tale is written by the very talented returning author, Charles Wreckage, from Victoria's own Pittsburgh, PA. In this tale, Chuck reminds us that the best gifts we can give this holiday are kindness, a willingness to listen, and the bravery to stand up for those who cannot stand up for themselves. So, grab some eggnog, a glass of Manischewitz, or a good Hefeweizen. And enjoy today's tale told by New York's Graham Rowett, Hamburg, Germany's Nadine Most, and of course, Perth, Australia's Amber Collins as our girl Victoria. Custom scored by our favorite elf from jolly old Lancaster, England, Nico Vitese. Now, let's go for a Christmas ride. A very Merry Christmas and Happy Hanukkah to all. I have lost so much. My name is Victoria. I am bound to this place, charged with guiding those who must choose. Don't be afraid. I can never again be the little girl I was. Will you accept your fate or change it? I have my music box and a library lost, but I sometimes feel very alone. Won't you join me? It's time for your ride on the lift. <laughs> Don't be afraid. 
December 19, 1943, a German airfield west of Krakow, Poland. Luftwaffe ace Frederick Milly von Milhausen was tired, dead tired, as he taxied his big FW-190 fighter aircraft off the hastily plowed runway and onto a snow-covered servicing area. Tapping the Focke-Wulf's left brake pedal, the plane rotated 180 degrees to face the airstrip. He set both main landing gear brakes, killed the engine, and slumped in his seat. Despite the bone-chilling cold of high-altitude interceptions in the brutal Polish winter, the inside of his leather flight suit was drenched with sweat. Eyes closed, he could hear the grinding approach of one of the airbase's war-weary Opel Blitz tanker trucks, loaded with its precious cargo of high-octane aviation gasoline. Milhausen had just finished his fourth sortie of the day, and was due to take off again as soon as his fighter was refueled and rearmed. The Allied bombers kept coming day and night. American B-17s and B-24s in daylight, and British Lancaster, Halifax, and Stirling bombers by moonlight. It was a ghastly, around-the-clock relay race of destruction, daily laying waste to his beloved Germany and Hitler's vaunted Third Reich. Fighting to protect his family and country was one thing, but never for the sake of a corrupt, oppressive government. He damned Hitler for this godforsaken war, but dared not speak his mind. Frustrated, he leaned back and yawned. Except for brief R&R furloughs, Luftwaffe fighter pilots didn't rotate out of frontline service. You kept flying and fighting until you were hospitalized, disabled, or dead. That partially accounted for the 33 victory markings stenciled on the left side of Milhausen's FW-190 fuselage, but they were mostly due to his keen eyesight, boundless courage, and natural piloting skills. His lanky fighter aircraft, affectionately nicknamed Millie's Mace, also featured an artist's depiction of its medieval weapon namesake, a spiked iron ball mounted on a wooden club. His eight British kills, followed by twenty Russian and five American, made him an ace six times over. The total would have been far greater had he not spent four months recovering from wounds suffered on the Eastern Front. Milhausen and his wife Lisette were practicing Roman Catholics and abhorred the brutal mindset of the Nazi power cult. He had risen to the Luftwaffe rank of Uberstleutnant, a lieutenant colonel. However, his reluctance to join the Nazi party reduced his chances of ever achieving a higher rank. Plus, like his good friend and mentor, General de Jagdflieger, Adolf Galland, commander of Germany's fighter force, Milhausen seldom returned the stiff-armed Nazi salute. Both men preferred to use the standard hand-to-forehead military salute instead. These political failings did not escape notice of the rabid party faithful, especially Milhausen's immediate superior, General Hans Kleinehofer. Weary in body and soul, his mind wandered to thoughts of Lisette and the fast approach of Christmas. Milhausen hadn't seen his wife in months, and had spoken to her only once, in a brief phone call six weeks past. Without her, the holiday would be lonely and unbearable. How he longed to hold her, kiss her, bury his face in her golden tresses and... A sharp rapping sound on the Focke-Wulf's plexiglass canopy broke Milhausen's reverie. It was his ground crew chief, Sergeant Spangler. Herr Colonel, Herr Colonel, you have a change of orders, yeah. The urgency in the sergeant's voice penetrated the clear acrylic. 
With some effort, Milhazen unlatched the canopy and slid it open. He yawned as the sergeant helped him undo his safety harness and gave him a small thermos of Erzat's coffee. The hot liquid was welcome, despite its questionable taste. All right, Spangler. What's all this about my orders? He stood, stretched his tight, aching muscles, emptied the thermos in two more gulps, and passed it back to Spangler. I have no idea, but I was told to pack your gear and have you report to the base commandant immediately, yeah? There is transport aircraft waiting for you. Wonderful. Just wonderful. Milhausen muttered at the thought of facing his officious Nazi commander. What the hell was going on? You must hurry. Herr General is not pleased about this turn of events usurping his authority. They say someone far above him forced the orders through. He was spitting mad, yeah? Milhausen climbed out of the cockpit, thinking. Galland. It had to be Galland's doing. He stepped gingerly down the wing route and jumped to the snowy ground, while Spangler's ground crew unreeled the Blitz's refueling hoses. A glance at the tank truck's side caught Milhausen by surprise. Someone had hastily painted five large white numerals on it. 26947. The uneven paint job was streaked and full of drips. Their fastidious commandant was sure to blow a fuse when he saw it. A short, slippery walk brought Milhausen to the airbase headquarters, a reclaimed farmer's cottage perched on the edge of a former wheat field turned airfield. On entering the building, he noticed a newly installed red and white plaque above the front door. A five-digit number, 26947 again, had been neatly painted in a fancy Gothic script. He made a mental note to ask Spangler what that was all about. After acknowledging the subdued greetings of several squadron mates inside, he knocked on Kleinehofer's door. Eingeben! came the brusque order to enter. Taking a deep breath, Milhausen braced himself, stepped in, and came to attention. Colonel Milhausen reporting as ordered, Herr General. Kleinehofer stood and leaned awkwardly against the desk. His spindly fingers clutched a crumpled set of orders in one hand and a half-empty glass of peppermint schnapps in the other. He glared at Milhausen and tossed the paper forms on the desktop. They landed next to an empty schnapps bottle and a large shoebox-sized package addressed to Milhausen, marked Confidential, Open en Route. The carefully wrapped package was sealed with the official stamp of General de Jagdeflieger, A. Galland. There are your new orders for a special mission in Dresden, Kleinehofer said, his face several shades of crimson. And a gift, I assume, from your famous guardian angel protector, Herr Galland himself. He turned his back, downing the remaining schnapps, and threw the glass against a wall. It would serve the fatherland well if your transport flight was shot down, preferably by our side. Now take this damned orders and that, that miserable package, and get out! I hope I never see your face again! Jawohl, Herr General, Milhausen replied to Kleinehofer's hunched back. Grabbing the orders and package, he beat a hasty retreat. Once out in the bitter cold, Milhausen spotted Spangler's fuel tanker pulling up next to another FW-190. He blinked in surprise. The sloppily painted numbers were missing from the truck's side. He glanced back at the headquarters building. The red and white plaque was gone, replaced by the original flight operations sign. Was some sick bastard playing a joke? Twenty minutes later, dressed in a winter uniform and toting the package and his gear bag, Milhausen approached his waiting transportation. As expected, the plane was a two-man FI-156 Fieseler Stoich, 
The gangly, long-legged Stoich utility aircraft always reminded him of a cross between a malnourished dragonfly and a flimsy American piper cub. His pilot, an artillery spotter captain, relieved him of the bag and opened the rear seat door. Milhausen paused before climbing in. He could have sworn the plane's squadron code markings, flanking the standard black-and-white iron cross on the fuselage side, had briefly appeared to be the numbers 26947, instead of the expected D-I-K-Q-R. He fastened his seatbelt and dismissed the phantom numbers phenomena as mere optical illusions due to stress and lack of sleep. With a top speed of only 109 miles per hour, the 323-mile flight in a Stoich would take a minimum four and a half hours, including one refueling stop. Milhausen settled in and re-read his orders as the plane lifted off and headed westward. His instructions were brief and to the point. Take soonest available aerial transportation, Dresden, Germany. Arrive no later, 1800 hours, 19 December 1943. Report Airbase Commandant Dresden. Further instructions in hand. Open package. Confidential. In flight only. By order of A. Galland. What the hell was Galland up to? Milhausen opened the mysterious package and smiled. It contained a pair of two-pound tins of real French roast Colombian coffee, his wife's favorite. In these days of strict rationing, they were worth their weight in gold. Tucked between the tins was another orders envelope, in hand indeed. Enclosed was a personal letter from Galland. Milhausen read the contents several times in joyous disbelief. He was to report to the Messerschmitt headquarters in Augsburg, Germany on Monday, January 3, 1944, and begin introductory classes with Herr Schwalbe immediately. Named after a fast bird, the swallow, Schwalbe was code for the revolutionary new ME-262 jet fighter Galland had revealed in private discussions. This was a tremendous opportunity for Milhausen, one that might even contribute to ending the war sooner with terms favorable to Germany. However, the best part for now was that he was on leave until January 2nd, and a commandant in Dresden would provide him with transportation to his home in Bonn. He and Lisette would be together for Christmas. Twenty hours later, Milhausen's heart raced at the first glimpse of his hilltop ancestral home, Haas der Gnade, House of Grace, through snow-covered pines lining the road. He motioned for his driver to take the service road on the right, even though it was steeper than the main driveway. The driver downshifted the Kubelwagen's four-speed manual transmission and made the turn. As Germany's answer to America's Jeep, the VW-built rear-engine Kubelwagen dug in and climbed the slippery grade with ease. Milhausen entertained thoughts of owning one after the war, provided he survived. As they swung onto the icy, brick-paved turnaround behind the twenty-room mansion's kitchen annex, Milhausen jumped out before the vehicle came to a complete stop. The kitchen door banged open, and a plump, middle-aged woman in a spotless white apron ran out with joyous shouts. Herr Millie, Herr Millie, at last you make it home. Thank God. She grabbed him in a bear hug and kissed his cheeks. We miss you terribly. A motorcycle carrier yesterday brought message from Herr Galland that you come. Caught off guard, he returned the kisses and said, I missed you too, Aunt Helga and your fabulous sauerbraten and dumplings. He gave her the boxed coffee tins. Here, a gift from Herr Galland, 
Lisette's favorite. Helga's eyes widened. Mein Gott, real coffee. I hurry. Tell Frau Millie you arrive. Then put pot on right away. Come, come inside. He followed her into the welcoming warmth of the ancient kitchen. Inhaling the tantalizing scent of fresh-baked bread, he ignored the fact that wartime shortages meant it contained a high percentage of wood fiber. How is my lovely wife? I thought she'd be here, helping you in the kitchen, preparing Christmas treats. Helga turned and frowned. Lisette, she... she is fine, but... but she... He grabbed Helga's arm. Is something wrong? She will explain to you herself. No, you tell me now. You must be gentle with Lisette. Her dreams have been greatly troubled, and she has lost much sleep. Helga absently wiped clean hands on her apron. Plus we have... we have both heard odd things in this house. Heard what sort of odd? Frederick! Lisette shouted from the doorway to the parlor room. She threw herself into her husband's arms, weeping and smothering him with kisses. <laughs> my love! My love! I've missed you so much! <laughs> easy, mein Schatz, easy, Milhausen said, caressing her golden hair. It's all right. I'm here now. He gently lifted her chin with a thumb and forefinger. Shocked that his wife's beautiful face was so drawn and ashen. Dark circles under her hazel eyes, the whites webbed with a filigree of tiny red veins, gave credence to Helga's plea for gentle caution. He led her to a settee in the corner. Your aunt told me of the nightmares afflicting you, mein Schatz. Lisette wiped her tears with a silken hanky. No, not nightmares, but strange, unsettling dreams, filled with otherworldly images of children. Lost, unhappy, suffering children. She sniffed and blew her nose. But always with a tiny glimmer of hope. They had wanted a family, but two troubled pregnancies and painful miscarriages had left Lisette unable to conceive. Surely this was the root cause of her anguish. I know what you are thinking, but there is more to it, much more. Aunt Helga and I have both heard extraordinary things in this house. Sounds of children running, playing, laughing, sweet gentle laughter, in the halls and rooms, upstairs and down. She paused and took a deep breath. And then there are the... the sightings. Sightings? What sightings? Please don't think me insane, but on occasion I've actually seen the children. Girls, two of them. One appearing to be nine or ten years old with curly blonde pigtails and wearing a purple party dress with white lace trim. The other older, perhaps thirteen or fourteen, dressed in the dirty grey-striped garb of a prisoner with an old woolen scarf tied around her forehead, framing a sad, angelic face. On her chest was a five-digit number. One I've seen appearing in strange places about the house. Two six nine four seven. Uh, yes, but how could you know? In Krakow, I caught glimpses of the same numbers, but suddenly. Suddenly they vanish. Yes, exactly. You must show me where you last saw these young girls. Helga made the sign of the cross and said, "I go to kitchen and make fresh pot of coffee. Come with me." Taking her husband's hand. She led him to the grand staircase opposite the main entrance. They last appeared in the third floor hallway and... A strange bell sounded. 
followed by the noise of a mechanical door opening. They turned in unison toward the sound. Instead of the expected dark walk-in cloakroom, they saw the bright, polished wood and brass interior of an old-fashioned elevator. Standing in the middle of the opening was a pretty little blonde girl dressed in purple. Cradled in her arms was a fluffy gray kitten purring contentedly. On the floor, near her patent leather Mary Jane's, was an antique wooden music box. Let's take the lift. It's much quicker than the stairway, the girl said in English. Already dumbfounded by her presence, the two adults were shocked they could understand her as if she spoke fluent German. Who? Who are you? Where did you come from and, and what are you doing here? My name is Victoria, but you must hurry, the strange little girl said, her eyes shimmering with an unearthly green glow. Please, step inside the lift. We haven't much time. Without realizing it, Melhazen's feet carried him into the elevator, with Lisette at his side. The English girl pulled the door closing mechanism and pushed button nine. The lift jerked into motion, rocketing upward. Milhausen steadied his wife as the accelerating G-force pressed down upon them. The floor indicator chime dinged repeatedly while the numbered buttons lit in rapid succession. At this rate, he expected the lift to rocket through the roof at any second. Our home only has three floors. You are no longer home. You are in my building now. A lost place of hope or despair. The choice will be yours to make together. What sort of nonsense is this? I demand that... Victoria silenced him with a raised hand. You were in no position to make any demands. She placed the grey kitten on the floor and retrieved her music box. Button number nine illuminated with a final ding, and all sense of upward motion ceased. You two must soon make a choice, and I cannot overstate the seriousness of that decision. The kitten mewed and playfully batted a paw at its reflection in Milhausen's shiny boots. We have no idea what you're talking about. You are a mere trespasser making irrational statements. The kitten arched its back and hissed, its tail bristling to twice its size, while needle-sharp claws raked Milhausen's trouser legs. Sequel, stop that, you naughty kitty. I apologize for her rude behavior. Sequel is our library cat, and she has been with me for many decades. She's become quite protective of me. Decades? A kitten? How is that possible? It's much too long a tale to tell now. Suffice it to say, when I was quite new at all of this, she helped drive off a monstrous wild stallion named Despair, and has made herself at home in our fast library ever since. Forget the cat! What is this so-called choice you insist we're to make? You shall see soon enough. Victoria reached down and stroked the kitten's fur. But first, I want you to meet someone. Provided we're not too late. The lift's door slid aside, revealing a dim hallway of indeterminate length, doors lining both sides. Shaleve, it's all right to come out now. I'm here with friends. The third door on the right slowly opened, its dry hinges groaning in somber protest. Then a small, shadowy figure dressed in prison garb emerged from the gloom. Lisette gasped and pointed a trembling hand. My God! That is the other young girl from the sightings. The kitten scampered out of the lift and jumped into the waif's waiting arms. The girl gave a joyous squeal, 
kissing and snuggling the tiny ball of fur, while tears moistened her pale cheeks. The child needs love and comforting. She started toward the waif, but Victoria blocked her path. No, it's too late for Shazlave, and so many others. The kitten leaped to the floor as Chase Lava stiffened and glanced towards the ceiling. The waif's pallid form shimmered into transparency and dissolved into nothingness. <gasps> Dear Lord, Lisette cried, burying her face against her husband's chest. What happened to that poor child? Shezleve Kofka, number 26947. And her mother, Katagena Kofka, number 26946, were murdered at the Auschwitz concentration camp last March. Milhausen winced and held his wife even tighter. We have heard many terrible rumors of the harsh treatments of Jews held in... Szeslewe wasn't even Jewish. She and her entire Polish family were devout Roman Catholics, such as yourselves. Lisette gasped, and Milhausen was barely able to speak. What? What then was their crime? Crime? To your government, it hardly mattered. Perhaps they were found inconvenient to the lofty plans of the Third Reich. Or maybe they died as pawns in reprisal for partisan resistance against German occupation forces. Take your pick. Victoria's green eyes blazed in unearthly anger. The camp rumors you heard are only partly true. In reality, they are vast killing fields for Jews and non-Jews alike. Absolute hellholes of inconceivable cruelty and nightmarish horrors worse than anything you can imagine. The lucky prisoners were merely starved gassed and cremated. The unfortunate ones are worked to death as slave laborers and dumped into mass graves like so many diseased cattle. Stop! Stop! I cannot bear to hear anymore! Milhausen wiped a hand across his eyes. This choice we face. Does it concern children like... like Cheslova? You know very well it does. Victoria's voice softened. This matter has been on both your hearts for many months. The time for doubt and indecision is long past. You must overcome your fears and act together as one, and soon. It is a dangerous task you place before us. Frederick, you know it's the right thing to do. She kissed her husband. But we will need much help and God's protection. Help and guidance will come as needed, sometimes in ways that seem miraculous. Victoria glanced at Milhausen. When the war is ending and you are seeking safe haven, you will encounter a future American friend of mine, and yours. He is a U.S. Army captain, Wilson McMillan. Few know his middle name is Sherman. If he is reluctant to help or refuses to believe what you tell him, just call him Sherm. The results will amaze you. Before Milhausen could ask a question, Victoria smiled and said, I wish you success. And a blessed Christmas. With that, she opened her music box lid. An intense flash of emerald green light left the German couple temporarily blinded. When their sight recovered, they found themselves standing at the foot of their home's grand staircase. May 8th, 1945. VE Day. An Autobahn checkpoint. American sector. Hey, Captain McMillan, you gotta come see this white flight kraut vehicle and talk to the driver. What's the problem, Sarge? McMillan said as he got out of his jeep. You capture another truckload of high-ranking SS officers masquerading as field gray grunts? Nah, nothing like that, sir. 
We got us a Luftwaffe big shot, a lieutenant colonel in full uniform, along with a frau that says she's his wife. You ain't gonna believe what's riding in the back of the truck along with the wife's old aunt. I got a couple corporals guarding them all with carbines. Is that them over there? Yes, sir. The crowd wanted to know who our commanding officer was, by name. Said he wouldn't surrender his Luger sidearm to nobody but you. Damn it, Sarge. Don't tell me you let him keep his weapon. Not to worry, Captain. He popped the Luger's magazine out, cleared the chamber, and handed me the mag. Here it is, sir. You want to hang on to it. As they approached the truck and prisoners, the guards came to attention. At ease, corporals. All right, let's get to the bottom of this. Colonel, do you speak any English? Very little. You are, I pre presume... Yes, presume... Uh, Captain Wilson McMillan. That's right. The German officer clicked his heels and, holding his pistol by the barrel, handed it to McMillan. I surrender to you. We place ourselves in custody of yours. McMillan accepted the pistol. Now who are you and what's this all about? I am Oberstleutnant Frederick von Milhausen, and this is my wife, Lisette. We have traveled far to avoid areas occupied by Russian forces and... His words were cut short by a loud cry from inside the truck. Sarge, what the hell was that? Sarge gave a sheepish grin. You better take a look-see, sir. He lowered the tailgate and pushed a canvas curtain aside. McMillan was speechless, gazing at a plump elderly woman cradling a bawling infant. Next to her were children. A truckload of children. I... I don't believe this. The children. Girls and boys. Some wearing yarmulke skullcaps, others with silver crosses on neck chains and several fingering rosary beads, stared back at Macmillan with hopeful eyes. We counted 19 kids, plus the baby. I think there's even a couple of gypsy orphans in there. Macmillan shot an angry glance at the German officer. Colonel, is this some sort of last-minute ruse on your part to get in Uncle Sam's good graces? A toddler hugged Milhausen's neck as he leaned against the tailgate. No, I assure you. Since two Christmas ago, we shelter these and other poor children protecting them from discovery by the SS and Gestapo. Truth, I am speaking to you, Sherm. Wait, Sherm? Only several close friends back home call me that. Who told you? A little English girl. She insisted that she and I were future friends of yours. for a ride. There are many stories here. Like this place. Like many things here. Some have become lost. But all lost things yearn to be found. And all stories long to be told. I've searched through my building. Gathering up stories. 
from every floor, from the basement to the ninth story, and every floor in between. Stories of choice, of the hopeless, the redeemable, and the lost. Stories that will unlock something inside of you and carry you through fear to your future. Get your copy of the Lift's First Anthology on Amazon in print and Kindle. Let's go for a read. 